Does God really care about me? That's what Stephanie asked when she received the words that her five-year-old son had a malignant tumor at the base of his brain. Does God really care about me? That's what Stan asked as he stared at the casket of his wife and best friend of some 37 years. Does God really care about me? That's what Jim asked as he was searching for spiritual truth in a sea of religious chaos. Does God really care about me? That's what Patty asked as she made, his, made her way home after being told by her boss her services were no longer needed and she now found herself unemployed after giving 15 years to the company. Does God really care about me? This is a fundamental question of faith. Does God, the infinite, almighty creator of heaven and earth, does God in his infinite ability truly care at an intimate, ultimate level to the ordinary activities of individual lives? Does God really care about me? This is, question, this is a question that many people have asked. Most people ask at some point in their journey. This is a question that the church at Ephesus was asking. The church at Ephesus had a mighty tall task. They were planted in a secular society. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire of the first century. Only Rome and Alexandria boasted a population that was greater than the 250-person population of Ephesus. Ephesus was a coastal town. It was a place where tolerance was the name of the day. People were tolerant not only in commerce and the marketplace, but also in their religious ideas. Artemis, uh, uh, Artemis was the goddess who had her temple there in Ephesus. In fact, much of the economy of Ephesus was based upon the tourists that would come both near and far, tour the temple <coughs> of Artemis, and then buy the little shrines that were made by the various merchants. <coughs> Many people were wondering, is the church going to have a positive effect in Ephesus? There were Christians that were there. The church had been founded on the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Some years had passed, but they were wondering, does God care about us? Does he care about the individual details of our ordinary lives? Does God really care about what's going on in my life, with my marriage, my finances, my city, my society, my family? Does God really care about us? This is a question that gets to the heart of the Apostle Paul. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he pins this letter to the Ephesians. And he answers one question. Does God really care about me? Yes. He answers it with a resounding yes. The yes explodes in exuberant praise out of his pen. He comes to the very beginning, verses 3 to 14. 
There's praise at the beginning of the statement. There's praise at the end. There's praise all throughout. Does God care about me? Yes, he does. And Paul just explodes in praise. The original uh, Greek manuscript has verse 3 to verse 14 as one run-on sentence. There's no grammatical markings. I mean, if your English translation has any periods or commas, your guess is as good as mine. Because in the original text, it's just one ongoing thought. It's as if that Paul can't write it fast enough. He says, I want you to know that God cares for you. I want you to know that you are on his mind. I want you to know that God is intimately and ultimately concerned about the ordinary activities of your individual lives. God cares about you. So then in verse 3, he says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The reason God cares about you is not because you're so good, but because he's so great. Every spiritual blessing that you need is found in Christ. So, he gives us three reasons how you and I can know that God cares about us. First, God the Father has chosen you. God the Father has chosen you. God has selected you. He has selected you to be on his team in his family. I often have wondered, when did God choose me? Was it the first time that I obeyed my mother and actually did what she told me to do? Was it that time that I helped that elderly lady carry her groceries to the car? Was it that moment when I finally had enough nerve to actually invite somebody to church? When did God choose me? The answer to that question is found in verse 3 and 4. Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. He chose us before Genesis 1-1, before the creation of the world, before God said, let there be light. He had already chosen you. Does God care about you? Absolutely. How do you know that? Because God the Father has chosen you. When did he choose you? He chose you before the very foundation of the world. God chose you long before you ever chose him. God's been thinking about you long before you've ever been thinking about him. God chose you before the very foundation of the world. Now, why? Why did he choose you? Once again, the answer is staring at you in the text. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose you not because you are holy and blameless. He chose you to be holy and blameless. He chose you to be like him, to be holy, set apart, uniquely different than anything else in creation, and to be blameless, righteous, upright in character and holiness before God the Father. God has chosen you before the very foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. Well, on what basis did he choose us? On what basis did he choose us to be holy and blameless? 
Was it because of some intrinsic value that you possess or I possess? Is it because of some creativity, some cleverness, some wealth, some advantage? Why did he choose us? Once again, at the end of verse uh, 3 and verse 4, end of verse 5, in love he predestined us. In other words, it has really nothing to do with you. It's because of his love. This love that is an agape love. It's unmerited, unconditional, no strings attached. It is eternal. It is forever. It is free. It is given because of God. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. On what basis does God choose us? His love based on his pleasure according to his will. So it's much more about God than it is about you or about me. Why is Paul talking about this? Because he's answering the question, does God care about you? And the answer is a resounding yes. How do you know that God cares about you? Because God the Father has chosen you. He chose you before the very foundation of the world. He chose you to be holy and blameless. He chose you not because of you, but because of his love, according to his pleasure and his purpose. I realize that the doctrine of election, the biblical concept of predestination, causes some people in the church to get unnerved. And to be honest, it really shouldn't. Because... Since it is a biblical doctrine, it ought to be one that we embrace wholeheartedly. It ought not be something that we are fearful of or we shove away or push aside. As long as we understand it in its proper context of what the doctrine of election is. To say that we affirm the doctrine of election and predestination, which we do because it's biblical, is to affirm the supreme sovereignty of God. And by affirming the supreme sovereignty of God, we in no way are diminishing human responsibility of choice. In the Bible, God's sovereignty and human free will choice is held in tension. There's a tension all throughout the Bible between God's sovereignty and human free will we would do well to maintain the tension. We don't need to alleviate the tension. If God didn't see fit to alleviate in the Bible, then you and I don't need to alleviate it outside the Bible. Because inherent in the Bible, this is a paradox. A paradox is an eternal truth that resides at the corner of an apparent contradiction. That's a paradox. It's an eternal truth that resides at the corner of an apparent contradiction. It appears to be a contradiction to say that when it comes to salvation, when it comes to predestination, it is God's sovereignty and it is human responsibility. Seems like a paradox. Seems like it's contradictory. But there are other tensions in the Bible. There are other examples of a paradox in the Bible. For example, if I were to ask you, who is the author of Scripture? What would you say? Many, if not most of you, would say, well, God is the author of Scripture. You're exactly right. It is God-breed. It is God-inspired. God is the author of the sacred text. 
But as I read the Bible, there seems to be only one, maybe a few more, but, but one comes to mind of when God literally writes the word with his own finger, and that's the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, those ten words. Moses says that they were etched on tablets of stone by the finger of God. But outside of that, there doesn't seem to be other places where somehow God reaches out of heaven and pins Leviticus or pins Psalms or pins John or Revelation. Who's the author of Scripture? Well, God breathed, God inspired, the Holy Spirit moved upon specific men to write down what God told them to write. So who's the author of the text? It's God, yes. It's men, yes. That seems like a contradiction. Yes, I know. But it's a paradox. It's a tension within the Bible that the Bible affirms so that Jeremiah wrote with his personality, so that John the Apostle wrote with his demeanor, so that the Apostle Paul wrote the letters with his persona, so that you can read the different genres, you can read the different letters, and you can almost come to the conclusion, I know who wrote that based on their tendencies, their grammar, the words they tend to use more than other times, because you know that who authored the scripture? It is authored by God, yes, but it's also authored by humanity, because there's a tension there, a paradox. If I were to ask you, who is Jesus? Many of you would tell me Jesus is God. You're exactly right. He is God. But some, uh, someone else in the crowd would say, but wait a minute. He's also fully man. You're right too. And he is fully God and fully man all the time. All the time God, all the time man, all the time so that Jesus is not a 50-50 split. He, he did not somehow evolve into being God. No, he is completely God, completely man. He is the God-man. That's a paradox. It's an eternal truth that resides at the corner of an apparent contradiction. When you and I come to this issue of election and predestination, we find ourselves right smack dab at the corner of a paradox. It feels as if it's contradictory, but it's not. I, I, I understand the fear. I really do. I understand the uneasiness that some Christians feel when it comes to this issue of election and predestination. I get it. Because we think to ourselves, there's something inside of us that just doesn't feel right when we say that God chose some. Why didn't God choose all? Yet the reality, my brothers, uh, we need to, brothers and sisters, we need to think to ourselves, we're astounded that God chose any. The astounding declaration of the scripture is that God chose any. For there is no one righteous, no, not one. God should have chosen none of us. And the fact that he chose some of us is enormously gracious, don't you think? Because God chose some. But I understand it. It makes people uncomfortable. They, they get uncomfortable when they think that God chose some. In fact, um, I remember a conversation I was having with a fellow pastor, a friend of mine. I love him to death. It was at a, another church. And any time 
we would bring up election and predestination. He would bristle up. I mean, he would bristle. You could see it on his face. And one day, uh, he and I were talking, and we went to Ephesians chapter 1, the passage that's before us this morning. And I called him by name, and I asked him, I said, when you read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, for he being God chose us in him before the creation of the world. Who is the us? He chose us. Who is the us? And he looked at me and he said, all of humanity. And I looked at him and I said, you're a better theologian than that. You're better than that. Who is Paul writing to? When he says he chose us, who is he speaking to? Well, specifically, he's speaking to the Ephesian church. Broadly, he's speaking to the church. Who did God choose? God chose us. Who's the us? The church is not a building. It's not brick and mortar. It's not a facility. The church is the people of God. So who did God choose? God chose his people, and his people willfully chose him. God chose us. If you are in Christ, then that's evidence of your election. God chose you. Does God care about you? Absolutely. How do you know? Because God the Father has chosen you. I also understand there are a couple of scenarios that when we think about election and predestination that we really get uncomfortable with. And I'm going to describe both these scenarios. And let me go ahead and tell you, both of them are fallacies. Both of them are untrue. Because they can, never, they can never be reality. The first untruth that we conjure up in our mind is we think to ourselves, well, if, if election is true, then we may have a situation where there could be somebody who really, really, really wants to accept Jesus Christ. But when that person stands before the Lord, the Lord's going to say, nope, I'm sorry, you're not on the list. I haven't chosen you. The flip side scenario is another one that people get unnerved about. They think to themselves, well, what if there is some hell-raising reprobate? I mean, they are rebellious towards God. They don't love God at all. They're rebellious in everything that they do. And yet somehow God's going to let them in because they're on the list. My friends, neither one of those scenarios will ever come true because the Spirit of God must work in cooperation with the spirit of man, not in competition. There will never be a conflict of spirit if a person expresses a desire to follow Christ with heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is evidence that they have been sovereignly selected by the Lord. And the Lord says, you come in. And if there is somebody who is a reprobate and they do not love God, they do not know the Lord, there is no way for no one is righteous, no, not one. And without repentance, no one can be gained entrance into the kingdom of God. I like what John MacArthur says. He says that when you come to this issue of election and predestination, I kind of picture it like this. A person comes to the pearly gates, they're given access into heaven. And above the pearly gates, there is a banner that says, whosoever will may come. And by faith, they boldly enter heaven because of the accomplished work of Christ. And then that same person, after he gets past the pearly gates, he turns around and looks at the backside of that banner. And on the backside of the banner is the inscription, chosen before the foundation of the world. It's not mutually exclusive terms. It's two sides of the same coin. 
so that when God's spirit moves upon you, you have to willfully, voluntarily respond in faith. There cannot be a competition of spirits. A place in the Bible where this is evident is in the story of Pharaoh, the Exodus event, where the Bible says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And if I were to ask you, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? What would you say? Well, according to Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, the Lord says, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. One chapter later, Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, Pharaoh says to Moses, I have hardened my heart. So who did it? God? Yes. Pharaoh? Absolutely. Because they were working in cooperation with each other. There cannot be where Pharaoh said, well, I really don't want to harden my heart. I really want to follow the Lord. If he had said, I want to follow the Lord, then that would have been evidence of of his election, but that's not even possible because God says, I've hardened his heart, and Pharaoh voluntarily says, I've hardened my own heart. I don't want to follow after God. Once again, why does Paul even write about this? It is not to give anybody a sense of superiority. It is to give the church an overwhelming sense of security that your salvation is not wrapped up in you. Your salvation is wrapped up in God. Does God care about you? Yes. How do you know? Because God the Father has chosen you. When did he choose you? Before the very foundation of the world. Why? On what basis did he choose you? To be holy and blameless in his sight? Why did he do this? What was the, what was the uh, uh, precursor to bring us about? His love according to his pleasure and his goodwill. In other words, God has been thinking about your church a lot longer than you've ever been thinking about him. The reason Paul writes about this beautiful doctrine is not to give anybody a sense of superiority over anybody else, but a grand sense of security that I know that God cares for me because I've been on the mind of God. You've been on the mind of God before Genesis 1-1. Now, if anything, that ought to make you feel an overwhelming sense that God cares. That if God has been thinking about you that long, then certainly he's not going to stop. He's not going to quit caring about you. He's been caring about you before you were ever a twinkle in your daddy's eye. Before the very foundation of the world, God the Father has chosen you. Secondly, God the Son has redeemed you. Paul says, I want you to know that God cares for you because number one, God the Father has chosen you. Number two, God the Son has redeemed you. Look at verse seven. In him being Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. In him being Jesus We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to his glorious grace. That word redemption is a marketplace term. It means to purchase. Literally, it's a word picture that describes the paying of someone's ransom so that their debt would be paid in full. 
That's redemption. Redemption is paying someone's ransom so that they may be liberated. In the first century, uh, and even times before that, um, you know, there, there were no visas, there were no MasterCards, there were no credit cards, there weren't banks in the way that we understand them. Um, and still, even in those days, some people had problems with money, and so they would get in large debt. And in order to borrow, you'd have to go to somebody that was wealthy, and you'd borrow money. But if the person could not pay back the debt, then as a last resort, what that individual could do is he could sell himself to that person as a slave and work off his debt. If that person who sold himself as a slave had a family member that was wealthy and willing, that family member could come and pay the financial debt. By paying the financial debt, that person would be liberated, set free. And the wealthy, willing family member who paid the debt was known as that person's kinsman redeemer. When Paul is answering the question, does God really care about you? The answer is a resounding yes. How do you know? Because Jesus Christ is your kinsman redeemer. From God's perspective, it looks something like this. As God looked at humanity, all of us were in the same mess. All incarcerated, in bondage, enslaved, indebted because of our defiant disobedience. There's no way we could pay off God to perfection. There was no way that we could pay our debt. And so we were incarcerated because of our sin debt. It was Satan who was the prison warden. We thought he had thrown away the key. And then all of a sudden, Jesus showed up to the prison one day. And Jesus said, my blood for their lives. What God saw as sacrificial substitution the devil saw as stupidity. Since the Garden of Eden, the devil has been nipping at Jesus' heels all the while. And now he had the opportunity to take the blood of Christ. So one Friday, it was all orchestrated. One Friday, Jesus rocked and reeled, stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem. One Friday, Jesus was nailed to a cross of wood. One Friday, Jesus groaned in pain, in agony, anguish. As Jesus breathed his last, Satan gloated. He thought he had won. The dead body of Jesus was taken off the cross and placed into a tomb. A stone was rolled in front of it. There was one hellacious party that went on Friday afternoon, Friday evening, into Saturday, Saturday night. But early Sunday morning, all the demons stopped their celebration because those that were posted to watch the tomb saw that there was light coming out of darkness. There was life 
coming out of death. And Jesus, the Son, was raised by God the Father through the power of God the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus walked out of the tomb, he had one stomp. And that stomp was on the head of the serpent. And in that one, in that one event, he crushed the serpent's head. And Jesus... was declared as our kinsman redeemer, wealthy and willing, and he paid the sin debt. I don't know about you, but that not only sounds like amazing grace, but that sounds like crazy grace. I mean, grace doesn't just set the prisoner free, but invites the prisoner home for dinner. Grace doesn't just pardon the criminal, but grace calls the criminal a friend. Grace doesn't just make a truce with the enemy so that we're on speaking terms. No, grace adopts the enemy into God's family. Grace doesn't just uh, remove punishment from sin, but grace lavishes us with love. Grace doesn't just give us a second chance on life. Grace gives us a new lease on life. I don't know about you, that's not just amazing grace, that's crazy grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come and grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home and when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun all because of big brother kinsman redeemer the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. does God care about you yes because God the Father has chosen you, and God the Son has redeemed you. Third and finally, God the Spirit has guaranteed your salvation. Look at verses 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When Paul speaks about the seal, it's the seal of authenticity. In those days, a seal was used to authenticate a letter, a legal document, a contract. The seal was hot wax that was placed on the fold of the letter, the parchment, or the envelope. And the one in authority had a signet ring. And that signet ring left an indelible impression upon that hot wax. It was better than a signature. The signet ring of the one in authority made such an impression that the wax immediately cooled around that signet ring and it left behind a marking, guaranteeing the authenticity of the contents of that letter. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying God the Spirit has left an indelible impression upon you. That if you are in Christ, he has left such an impression upon you that other people see you and they say, there goes a godly guy and a godly gal. 
spitting image of God the Spirit. I can see the impression of the Trinitarian God all over you. Paul says that this seal is not just a seal of authenticity, but it's a seal of promise. It's a, it's, it's a promise that's given to us of what is to come. Now, Paul will say that eternal life starts the moment of our faith, but as we walk this side, as we live this Christian life, we are receiving a deposit. That deposit is the Lord, is the Holy Spirit that resides inside of us, and it's a promise that's given to us by God that what awaits us at death is a home in heaven. For death is not the end of the road, death is a bend in the road. There are a lot of people who make promises, but God is a promise keeper. And he gives you the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is a deposit that guarantees the eternal life that is to come in heaven when you stand before God face to face. Politicians make promises. Parents make promises. Preachers make promises. Coaches make promises. Sometimes promises are made and broken, but God gives you a promise that will always be for time and eternity. So if you have the Spirit of God stamped upon you, that is evidence that God cares for you. Does God care about you and the ordinary activities of your life? The answer is resounding yes. How do you know? Well, God the Father has chosen you. God the Son has redeemed you. And God the Spirit has guaranteed your salvation. Still some of you are not convinced. Still some of you have questions. You take an inventory of the landscape of your life and you still wonder, does the infinite God really care? Yes, preacher, I hear that God the Father has chosen me and God the Son has redeemed me and God the Spirit has guaranteed my salvation, but still look at the suffering and the sadness and the tragedy and the setbacks. Does God really care? Is he really involved in me? It's at this moment that I want to tell you something um, that I learned a couple of years ago. Um, and, and the reality of it is this, that, that, that God is so involved in your life that he has stamped himself in you. What I'm about to tell you, I, uh, I got from Jan. And because of the gift of, of emails and things, uh, Jan got it from Gina, and Gina got it from Marilyn, and, and Marilyn got it from Jim, and Jim got it from Jeff, and Jeff got it from Louie. So what I'm about to tell you, I very indirectly got from Louis Giglio. It's a couple years ago that Louis Giglio was preaching in West Texas. After he got done, a molecular biologist came up to him. Louis, are you preaching Sunday? Yes, I'm preaching this Sunday. What are you preaching about? He said, well, I'm preaching about the glory of God and how we can see the glory of God on display in all of creation. The molecular biologist asked him, Louis, what's your left hook? And Louis said, I don't know that I have a left hook. He said, every preacher's got to have a good left hook. I mean, you land it at the end of the sermon, it knocks everybody out. They walk away astounded. You've got to have a left hook. What's your left hook? And Louis said, I, I don't have a left hook, but I, I'm hoping and thinking that you're going to give me one right now. He said, your left hook is laminin. And Louis sat there, and as preachers, we don't know a whole lot. And we definitely don't know much about molecular biology. 
So he said, laminin. What's laminin? And the scientist just went kind of crazy. He said, you don't know what laminin is? Listen, you've got 60,000 proteins in your body. One of those proteins is the molecule laminin. And laminin is a cell adhesion molecule. Do you know what a cell adhesion molecule does? And Louis says, I'm sorry, I do not know what a cell adhesion molecule does. He says, this is, this is the rebarb of your body. This is what holds you together. It's because of laminin that you have lining that holds your organs together and in place. It holds your skin in place. It keeps your skeleton in its proper structure. If you didn't have laminin, you would just be a pile of gloop and uh, just a, a glob just kind of making its way uh, through existence. But because of laminin, everything in your body holds together you've got to tell them about laminin so he looked at the scientist and said okay I promise I'll go home I'll look at laminin and I'll tell him about it he googled laminin he was astounded by the looks on some of your faces, you know exactly what laminin looks like. From the looks on some of your faces, you have no clue what I'm talking about, but you're about to get amazed because I want to show you something that is in your body. It's in every person's body. This is what holds you together. Literally, if you didn't have this um, cell uh, adhesion molecule, then you would just uh, dissolve. There's no way you'd be held together. So if you wonder what in the world, what from God's design holds us together, the answer is laminin. And laminin looks like this. Woo! That's laminin. That's the stamp that God has made as an indelible impression upon you. What you're looking at is a molecular picture of laminin under a microscope. And then beside it is the, is the picture, the drawing of the, the scientists used. That's laminin. Literally, it holds and binds your body together. Does God care about you? Does God care about the little details of your life? Does God care about the individual things that are going on in ordinary life? Does God care about First Baptist Ephesus? Does God care about First Baptist Pelham? Does God care about the first century and the 21st century? The answer is a resounding yes. Don't ever doubt it, my friends. How do you know that God cares for you? Because God the Father has chosen you and God the Son has redeemed you and God the Holy Spirit has guaranteed your salvation. Do you begin to understand now why Paul explodes in exuberant praise? Because this God that we serve always and forever cares about you. So what do you do with that? If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, today can be the day of your salvation. If you are a Christian, today can be the day when you just once again praise the Lord and say thank you for caring so much about me that you hold me together by the cross. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. If there's one here who is searching for truth, if there's one here who is looking for evidence that you care about us, may they look no further than Ephesians chapter 1. 
Father, if there are Christians here and maybe we've just gotten discouraged, maybe we've become complacent, maybe we have just uh, allowed doubt to creep in about how much you love us and care for us, Lord, today help us just to be reminded afresh that your love for us is infinite. So, Lord, have your way in this invitation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.